First off, thank you for being here this morning as we've gotten to celebrate our graduates. This is no small accomplishment, so thank you for being here to celebrate them. I figured this morning would be a good morning to not just celebrate our graduates, but give them a little bit of advice. So, listen up. Parents of these graduates, also listen up so you can remind them in case they forget. High school graduates, this is straight for you. College professors, they're not as scary as everybody makes them out to be. They've got really cool stories, they've done really cool things, and they'll teach you a lot. Study habits, you can't do the same things in college that you did in high school and expect the same results. Actually study for your exam. Here's another good one. Sleep. You don't really need to pull all-nighters if you plan well. Sleep, but not during your first class. Also, this one's personal experience. You will enjoy nap time in college. There is nothing better than coming back to the dorm, getting in your bed that's plastic, and having the best nap of your life. Two more quick things. Classes canceled. Emails will take your day from zero to 100 very quickly. And the last one, again from personal experience, Wi-Fi is not trustworthy on Sunday night at 9 p.m. Submit your assignments as early as possible. I'd be remiss if we just focused on our high school graduates. So college graduate, that's in front of me. Finances. It's a good one for you. Learn how to make cheap, affordable lunches. When you're hanging out at a new job and everybody invites you out to eat, you will spend no more than $5 if you take your own versus spending $75 to $100 a week if you don't. Here's another one that I have to learn myself. Dishes. Do them every night before you go to bed and you won't have a pile at the end of the week. I stand before you this morning as an advocate of that that still has maybe one or two dishes in the sink this morning. Here's an important one. Don't sacrifice your ideals to become cool or keep friends. And the last one, get involved with the community around you. This church, as well as other churches in the area, would love to have people like you serving. So now that we've got all mushy on our high school and college graduates, this is for everybody, including our graduates, You'll miss these days. Whether you are graduating from high school, whether you're graduating from college, or whether you are the parent of one of these graduates, or a parent of an 18-month-old like myself, you'll miss these days. Think, 10 years ago, one of the mothers that's here this morning told me that they sat in these very pews watching slideshows go across the screen, saying, one day, that'll be me. Today is that day. And it happened like that. The next one, this is for all of us. You are responsible for your actions. With more responsibility, more freedom, they go hand in hand. A wise man named Spider-Man once said, with great power comes great responsibility. I wouldn't be the youth pastor if I couldn't throw that in there. But remember that. With more freedom comes more responsibility. And this is the last one. This one's for all of us. Accumulate memories, not just stuff. 
the memories that you have built are the ones that you're going to take with you. The piece of paper you get when you walk across the stage is a stuff that you will keep, but the memories that you have from high school are the things you'll take with you. That's true for all of us this morning. The memories that you have are the ones that you will keep. Don't get so far into your adult life and find out that the stuff that you have acquired means nothing. Acquire these memories. Cherish this moment and celebrate this moment. You guys have worked hard to get here. That's not a small accomplishment. Congratulations. But what is more important than all this worldly advice is passing down the gospel to the next generation. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll start in verse number 1. This passage is a passage that's been near and dear to me since my time in seminary. I got my Master of Arts in Religion, but my concentration was discipleship and church ministry. So this is one of those that I've read probably, let's see, eight years now. But it's one of those passages that we get to keep coming back to. So if you're following along, we'll start in verse number one. And it says this. These are the commands, the decrees and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give to you, so that you may enjoy a long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. These first three verses are talking about literal laws and commands and decrees that Moses is telling the people of Israel, hey, God's commands are these. They're not suggestions that Moses came up with in his head. These are things that the actual Lord, the God of the universe, laid on Moses' heart to share with the people. That takes us to two things. They were commanded to listen and to obey. It wouldn't be Graduate Sunday without talking about your childhood, right? When you were children, your parents had to tell you to listen and to obey. Now that you're teenagers, you still have to tell you to listen and to obey. Whether you are 50 years old, you're 100 years old, or whether you're five, these are two words that you're going to continue to hear. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. But they do go hand in hand. It's one thing to hear what somebody says. It's another thing to actually do it. Parents, you can remember this for when you tell them this later. Listen and obey. Here's the next part of the passage. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This ties back into the listen and obey part. They've been told what the commands were, but they've also been told to tell the next generation the commands and the decrees of the Lord. This is where it falls on parents, grandparents, youth pastors, pastors, teachers to pursue godliness, to pursue students that pursue godliness. It's important for us to impress on them, the next generation, 
the decrees, the commands, the statutes of the Lord. And I get that we're busy. So do the writer of Deuteronomy. 168 hours in your week. You all spend roughly 40 or so at school. 128 remaining. You got to sleep. We'll give you 60 hours, maybe. That leaves you with 68 hours. You got to eat. You got to do your homework. You got jobs. You got all that other stuff. We're busy people. But look at the end of verse 7. The end of verse 7, it says, with repetition being the key, when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Everybody in here woke up this morning, right? Looks like it. I can't say you're all still awake right now, but you all woke up at least once today. That covers that one. Lord willing, we will all put our heads on the pillows and go to sleep tonight. Covers that one. You all got here. None of you spent the night here. So you came along the road to get here. And you will all hopefully at some point today go home or a place that you call home. Each of these places is discussed as places that we should continue to share the gospel, that we should continue to have intentional conversations. Scripture was clear. They get that you're busy. When you lie down, when you get up, when you go, when you stay. This is talking about your regular rhythm, the daily rhythm of life, no matter what you are doing, to have those intentional conversations. Just like the word impress, right there at the end of 6 and 7, it's talking about the sharpening. When you sharpen a knife, you don't just do it one time and you go out and cut something. You sharpen on one side. And when you're done with one side, you know what you do? You turn it over and you, you do the other side of the blade. So that way you have a blade that is sharp enough to actually do what it's supposed to do. Just like that takes intentionality and repetition, so does discipleship. Discipleship doesn't happen by accident. Many of the students and some of their parents know that there's a a gentleman named Connor, and he's been my unofficial intern for the last, I don't know, two months. Every Wednesday, he'll show up. Hey, what are you doing? About to eat. What are you doing? See you in 30 minutes. And then he's here. I could easily turn him away and say I'm busy, but Connor wouldn't care. He'd show up anyway. The next eight hours that we spend together are spent eating, talking, fellowshipping, planning, preparing a lesson, talking through scripture. Sometimes it's literally making a video for that night. But I say this, what gets accomplished in eight hours every single week takes the place of what would happen over the course of eight weeks if we only met one hour a week. Repetition, intentionality, making good use of your time. If your student or grandchild or whoever it is is with you for an hour a day, use that hour. But if you have an opportunity to sit together, to spend time together for longer than an hour, turn off the technology and do it. It's tough. It's going to take intentionality, but it's going to be well worth it. This week, I've been doing my research, just like I've expected you guys to do the last 13 years. And there's a study that was put out by the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, contributed by Boston University School of Social Work, Columbia University, and Silver School of Social Work at NYU. A bunch of really smart people said the same thing. And what they said was this. If a student spends at least four meals together with a family per week, the percentage of at-risk behavior drops significantly. 
these aren't Christian people. These are people that are smart. They're at the forefront of their field of education. And yet, they understand just four meals together as a family in a week. The percentage of at-risk behavior drops. There's 21 meals in a week. More than likely, you're not spending breakfast together every single day if you have a student. Because they're running to school, you're running to work, you're hoping they did their homework and get out the door dressed. That leaves 14 other meals. Students, y'all have your lunch at school, Monday through Friday, most likely. Takes you down to nine meals. Just half of those. If you spend half of those meals together, the percentage of at-risk behavior drops significantly. Y'all, if the world understands that, then so should we. There's adults in the homes today that are physically present, that are spiritually absent. And my encouragement to you is step one, get together. Step two, take it further. Graduates, you can also pursue this. It's easy to go out with your friends on Friday night, Saturday night, Saturday all day, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. That takes out five of your meals. You have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night you can eat together. And that gives you your four. Pursue each other. And that's where we're going to start heading. So you look at the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is saying these things. Who's he saying them to? The whole entire group of Israel. The five-year-olds, the 15-year-olds, the 25-year-olds, 35, 45, 55, 105. Everybody's together hearing this. Just like this morning, we got to celebrate our graduates together on purpose. There are people in here this morning that are under the age of 10. And so far, they're doing a really good job. I haven't heard a single one of them. But I want to tell you this. It was the same way in the, with Israel here. They all heard the commands. They all heard the decrees. They all understood what the Lord was asking of them. We go back even a little bit further to Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says this, make these things known to your children and your children's children. This right here is indicating literally that they are all together. And it's not just about their children, but it's about their children's children. If you're a grandparent in here this morning, you have the distinct honor of being exactly who they're talking about. Your children, but also your children's children, your grandchildren. It was the same thing here. If it was important for them in Moses' time to all be together, for all of them to worship together, for all of them to hear the word together, for all of them to gather together, wouldn't we think that it's important for us as well? We keep going this morning, and we're talking about this really big title. It sounds like a dissertation paper, and it's literally Intergenerational Discipleship and Community. What's that boil down to? Literally, Discipleship from one generation to the next. It's that simple. It is passing down your faith to the next generation. Because just like there's a lot of advice that we can stand up here and give, we all agree that the most important thing that we can share is our faith. So no matter whether you are the student or whether you're the adult, there's always something for us to do. Here's here's the important part of that, though. Like I said, discipleship doesn't happen by accident. It happens with relationship, it happens with mentorship, and it happens with community. 
If you don't share a space with somebody, discipleship will never happen. This isn't a new concept. This isn't something I made up when I was in seminary to try to pass. This is something that's throughout Scripture. If you're taking notes, write down these right here. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Moses spoke to Israel for the final time. They were all together. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat called a fast for the entire nation. They were all together. Nehemiah chapter 8 and Nehemiah chapter 12. Ezra read aloud the book of the law and the entire community celebrated together. Each of these situations are monumental things that are happening and they're all together. Graduation is a monumental thing. We are all together. But it keeps going. The month of May, we have as a church been reading through the book of Psalms. If you're running ahead on your reading plan, you've potentially read this one. It says, Psalm 145, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. If you're running right on time or a little behind, you have this one, Psalm 78. The psalmist is explaining the importance of testifying of the Lord's faithfulness to the next generation so that they would know that their Lord and their God is faithful and that they would continue in the faith. So whether you're looking at Psalm 145, whether you're looking at Psalm 78, or whether you're looking throughout the Old Testament, there's examples of everybody being together. But guess what? It doesn't stop in the Old Testament. The New Testament continues. The first four books, the Gospels, you have Jesus literally saying, come, let the little children come to me. Children, y'all are important too. Parents, your children are important. Jesus specifically talks about children and young people in Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Matthew 18, Matthew 19, Matthew 21, Mark 10, and Luke 9. Jesus understood the importance of faith being passed down to the younger as well. We think about the the writer, Paul. We think of all of his books of the New Testament. He also had something to say about this. In Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, he mentions the whole council, the whole gathering of that community, young to old, with the expectation that they're probably all sitting together hearing it. Likewise, this morning, we are all here, knowing that we're commanded to hear. But this next part is, is an important part. It's one thing just to hear it. It's another thing to obey it. But you think through Scripture at all the examples of intergenerational, older and younger people that were doing life together. For me, I look at Eli and I look at Samuel. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 3. I look at Timothy and his mother and his grandmother in 2 Timothy. You think of Elijah and Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2. Naomi and Ruth throughout the entire book of Ruth. Moses and Joshua in our story today in Deuteronomy. Every single one of these these situations had an older and a younger. Students, you are the younger, but you are not also the older. Behind you are students younger than you. Behind you are adults older than you. You are now part of the sandwich in the middle. And I consider myself to be in that sandwich with you. There are people older, there are people younger that you all have to look at. So we we see the importance of that in Scripture. 
But what are the real life benefits of multi-generational friendship? For me, I, I think back to a personal story. My grandmother was the closest thing to a saint I've ever seen. She was awesome. She was literally hands and knees, family Bible, praying for each and every single one of us. When I got to preach her funeral, I got to have her Bible to do it. And the notes that were in there would blow me away. And yet, it goes back to a story. I'm an Atlanta Braves fan. So was everybody else in my family. And yet, it's the story of Don Larson. If you're a baseball fan, you already know where I'm headed. New York Yankees pitcher, World Series. My grandfather's at work, picks up the phone. Hey, how's the game going? Things doing pretty good. Nobody's gotten on first base. Okay, awesome. They hang up. Rotary dial. How's the game going? Uh, I think the Yankees are winning. Nobody's gotten on first base. All right, sounds good. Hang up again. This goes on probably every 15 to 20 minutes for about three to four hours. Last phone call comes. Hey, uh, how's the game? Uh, I think it went really good. The Yankees won, and I don't think anybody ever got on first base. My grandfather comes across the phone. Did he just throw a perfect game in the World Series? For me, as a baseball fan, I'm jumping out of my skin. Like, this guy just threw a perfect game in the World Series, the greatest stage ever. And my grandmother's like, yeah, I think that's what they said. All right, see you soon. What? And yet, my grandfather, while he was working, keeps calling home. Hey, tell me about the game. Tell me about the game. Tell me about the game. So when I get to sit at that table in her house back in Virginia and just say, hey, tell me about that game. It's the same words that my grandfather got to utter to her on the phone. And yet, she knew that the key to the rest of the intentional conversation was baseball with me. But I'll tell you this, after that baseball conversation about something that I wasn't even a thought of led to so many intentional conversations about her life, her family, her story, her walk with the Lord. Students around you, there are stories to be had. People that are not students' age anymore. I won't call you old. There are stories to be shared. More importantly than that, are these next few benefits here. The wisdom that can be gained from just having an intentional conversation with somebody in a different generation. Younger students asking older people, hey, tell me about this. Hey, tell me about your childhood. Hey, tell me about the Great Depression. Tell me about World War I. Tell me about all these things. And they'll tell you. All you have to do is listen. On the flip side, older people, I'm not going to call you old, older than student people. You get a new smartphone. Who's the first person you call? Besides Ghostbusters. (laughs) Student ministry, ladies and gentlemen. The first person you call is probably somebody younger than you to help you out with the new technology. There's wisdom to be gleaned from the younger as well as the older. The next thing is this, though. There's awe and wonder to be gained from a multi-generational friendship. 
when it came to the story of Don Larson's perfect game, that was me in my frail mind, like, what? That's awesome. And yet it led to so many other conversations that led me to realize how awesome our God is. When we as students and young people look to the older generation to share their story of faith, we get to hear stories of God's faithfulness over and over and over again. On the flip side, other people asking students, some of these students have stories that would make you cry. Some of these students have stories that would make you realize how awesome of a God that we do serve. But regardless of whether you're the older or the younger generation, there's a story to be shared. The last one is this, godliness. For me, I look at, there's men even in this church since I've been here that have helped me to pursue the Lord harder and faster and stronger than I ever had before. And then I, in turn, hopefully have encouraged students to do the same. Because there are relationships that are being built, that are built on faith, trust, love, acceptance, all of these things that are hopefully spurring us all on towards the Lord. If we're being honest here, this is the goal of multi-generational faith. To be able to love the Lord so much that you strive after him 100% and you bring somebody along with you that needs to do the same. With every benefit, there's also a cost. So what are the costs? You're gonna have to get out of your comfort zone. Young people, you're going to have to talk to older people. Older people, you're going to have to talk to younger people. And I'll tell you about this group right here. They're all sitting pretty much right here. This is an awesome group of students. I love these guys. Hopefully they love me too. But here's the key. They are outgoing. They are talkative. They are fantastic people. But some of them are afraid to walk up to somebody older than them. If you, as the older person, initiates that conversation and be like, hey, how can I pray for you? Hey, what's your name again? Hey, what school do you go to? And start that conversation. You never know where it'll lead. The next thing, you have to be willing to speak and also listen with humility. This is a tough spot because we have many generations in here that are strong, awesome generations. But this can lead to generational narcissism, thinking that you are better than the other generation. And if you think that, the wall will always be up. If you understand that it is with humility that you have these conversations, there are people that will learn from you and you will learn from that you never would have thought you crossed paths with. The third and most important one is the fact that above everything else, you must elevate, elevate Jesus Christ. If you are elevating baseball, if you are elevating school, if you are elevating anything other than Jesus Christ, the extent of your conversation will be that far. You elevate Jesus Christ above all else, and your conversations are endless. C.S. Lewis says it this way, the friendship that begins with one person saying to another, what you too. There's a delight in understanding that you are not the only one. There's a sense of community in knowing that you are not the only one. And because of this, every Christian can stand together. Old, older, adult, younger, younger student, no matter how old or young you are, can stand side by side 
elevating the name of Jesus Christ. Because when we do this, we come together and we share testimonies, we share in prayer, we share in worship, we share the message of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we all draw closer to God across these generation lines. Recognizing that there's a work to be done leads us to a decision. If you're still following along, turn to Joshua chapter 24. We've all heard of Joshua 24, verse 15, but we're going to read that whole passage. I want us to see what 14 through 18 says. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, and it says this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went among all the peoples whom we passed. In verse 18, The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. We've heard the phrase, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's decision here wasn't just saying, hey guys, we're going to serve the Lord, let's just go on. This was a serious thing. They had gods that were being worshipped amongst their group that were not the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he says, hey, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But if you read the end of chapter 24, this is happening at the end of Joshua's life. Joshua is about to die. And these words are uttered. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's the important part. He knew that he wanted his family to serve the Lord even after he was gone. That's a decision for all of us. Do you want your family to serve the Lord even after you're gone? Hopefully that answer is yes. But it brings us to this. He was concerned with other generations other than his own. Joshua knew that his time was coming to an end. He knew that time was short. Today, time is short. And yet, the decision to be made isn't whether a generation is different than you, isn't a generation is smarter, dumber, better or worse. It's this. Is it important for me to play a part in sharing the gospel with this generation and the generations to come? Because there was a decision made in Joshua 24. He asked, whom will I serve? I will serve the Lord. Graduates, families, and all of us alike. There's a decision to be made this morning. We have the gospel. We have the mission. What are you going to do with it? Choose today whom you will serve. And take the gospel not just across the world, but also across generational lines. There's a lot to be learned. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this morning you've allowed us to gather, Lord, just to be able to celebrate these graduates and their families. Lord, being thankful to be a part of their short but sweet ceremony, Lord.
We ask that you would have your arms around them, uplift them and encourage them, Lord. And their valleys be their rock, Lord. Lord, we pray for their parents and their grandparents and their families, Lord. Be the rock that they need as well, Lord. We know this is a tough time for each of them as they see this transition before them. We pray your blessing upon them, Lord. Allow us to all take the message we have heard this morning across generational lines and across the world, Lord. It's in your name I pray, amen.